Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and today we're going to start off with a dot on the map. Worland, Wyoming. It's on the native ancestral land of the Eastern Shoshone, Crow, Sioux, and Cheyenne people. For a little look into the history of early people here, the Washakie Museum and Cultural Center has an excellent exhibit on mammoth hunting and has a wiki up on display. Now the town of Worland is on the move. Let me explain. In 1900, Charles Worland, known by his nickname of Dad, made a humble dugout stage stop by the Bighorn River as a resting spot along the Bridger Trail. Three years later, a party of surveyors came through to assess whether an irrigation project would work there. And by 1904, the digging was in full swing. Camp Worland had grown to include a school, a church, a post office, and more. They were really thriving until the railroad came through, and they laid their tracks on the other side of the Bighorn River from Camp Worland. Now, the townspeople were not going to get left behind. Led by Dad Worland, they banded together, and they moved their whole town across the frozen river, and they remade it by the new rail tracks. The first building to be moved was a saloon, of course, which was moved on New Year's Day, 1906. Today, Worland is a small town that's also a business hub in the Bighorn Basin. It has kind of a blue-collar vibe due to the large Pepsi plant and other businesses that support the Pepsi plant, such as a soda can plant and sugar beet processing. Worland is also a hub for oil and gas as well as the agriculture industry. It is off the main tourism path, but it has some real gems that are definitely worth checking out. First of all, the downtown area is highly walkable. It has a variety of shops and bars and restaurants to choose from. I will continue to post my favorites on TripAdvisor, which I've linked in the show notes. One of those hidden gems is the Whirlwind Aquatic Center. It has it all. It has a lap pool, a swimming pool, a diving board, a therapy pool, a hot pool. It has zero-depth entry for babies, splash buckets for toddlers, and slides for the bigger kids. It is super clean and is a great place to take a break and a shower if you're camping cross-country. I also recommend that you spend a few hours at the Washakie Museum and Cultural Center, which I mentioned earlier. It has really good programming for kids as well as adults, and the exhibits are really well done. It's a perfect place to get a basic understanding of local history and geology. And that geology lesson will definitely come in handy when you get out to the Gooseberry Badlands just outside of town. This area has very well-marked trails and otherworldly scenery. And the best thing is that you'll probably have it to yourself. Now, if you go in summer, make sure you carry water and use sunscreen and may as well use a hat too. It's a great area for boondocking in early summer and fall, although Other months may be too hot, cold, or wet. Another excellent place to stop and go for a walk is the Duck Swamp Interpretive Area. It's just outside of town, and it's a great place to stop, walk, and have a picnic at the gazebo. And you know what that swamp attracts? Apart from birds, probably turtles. And that brings us to today's Wyoming wildlife. We have four turtle species in Wyoming. Since we're mostly desert, that's not surprising. We have mean old snapping turtles, box turtles, we're in the northern end of the range, 
and the absolutely gorgeous painted turtle. But the star of today's episode is the spiny softshell turtle. They are the largest Wyoming native turtle. Females reach 20 or more inches long, and the smaller males are about a foot long. Their coloring varies. They can be olive, gray, or brown, and some individuals even have black spots. Now, what makes them easy to identify is their long snout and their flat shell, which is kind of sandpapery and somewhat flexible. That's why they're called the soft shell turtle. They have long claws that allow them to quickly swim away from predators, but also they use them to dig into mud and sand. Now, you're most likely to see these turtles sunning themselves along the banks of slow-moving rivers. You'll see them along lakes and streams that have sandy or muddy bottoms and very little vegetation. In fact, you may only see their pointy snout sticking out. And other than hunting for food or sunning themselves, they spend almost all their time fully underwater. In fact, they can even breathe while underwater by absorbing oxygen through the skin of their throat. This keeps them safe from predators and hidden so that they can hunt. Now, spiny softshell turtles eat anything in the water that they can swallow. This includes insects, crawfish, and even small fish. And in fact, they hunt their food by burying themselves in the mud or the sand with only their heads sticking out and zoop, grabbing their food as it swims by. So that's Whirland, and that's the spiny softshell turtle. On to today's guest, Mr. Grant Ujifusa. He is a third-generation Wyomingite of Japanese ancestry, and he was key in getting the Japanese-American Redress Bill passed in 1988. This law provided an apology and reparations for the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Now, Grant is originally from Worland, which you will hear him talk about, and he didn't mention anything about turtles, but they are a symbol of longevity both here and in Japan. Let's have a listen. Today we're going to delve into your family story here in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming, but yeah. you're living in Philadelphia now, and by my calculation, you've lived more of your life outside of Wyoming than in-state. Yeah. Um, but what about Wyoming still feels like home to you? Well, everything. I uh, go home at least once a year with my wife. I still own the farm on Washkie 10, uh, which has been in family hands now for 111 years. And um, I hope to keep it in family hands for as long as I can. And I've made arrangements in my will to try to make that possible. So the farm is there farmhouse is there. I have some high school classmates I still keep in touch with. When I think of home, I think not of Chappaqua, New York, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but but home is, is Warland, and home is the farm. So I've never, uh, in spirit and in reality, never really left home, even though physically I've been, when did I leave physically? I left in 19... 60. So much more of my time away from Moreland than living in Moreland. Well, and I read that your grandfather, Suichi Ujifusa, came to the Bighorn Basin to work with the railroad yes. in 1906. So he was the one that 
started the family farm or what are, what are your memories of your grandparents? Well, we lived in a traditional Japanese peasant family. Or for that matter, I think people who were not peasants who were above us in status. The ideal family was my mom, dad, Dick Chain and Spot, but grandpa, grandma, oldest son, his wife, Dick Chain and Spot. So I lived with my grandparents until I left Warland and, and um, when I returned at Christmas, they were, they were still there. So I have very strong memories of both. And, uh, until I was six or seven, maybe a little later than that, I was completely bilingual. I then knew as a, a powerful and engaging figure who had, uh, strong opinions about whatever he wanted to have strong opinions about. He's a very smart fellow, too, and he learned to read and write English, which made him a, a local leader uh, among Japanese-Americans who were settled around Warland um, and beyond, clear into Nebraska and up into Montana, as far away as Miles City and other places I would visit with him. It was, there were Japanese who worked on the uh, on the northern Pacific, I think, which still runs through Billings and down into Riverton, Lander, so we had a community that encompassed, at least at 4th of July, all of Bighorn Basin down to Lander and up into southern Montana. And we choose a spot somewhere in the middle, usually around Powell, maybe, or farther south. So the, I felt a member of a distinct ethnic group uh, as I was growing up. Uh, it's not that we saw them often, but we had a sense of who these families were and uh, where they were. I feel rooted in Warland, not only among the whites, but among among Japanese Americans who lived in the community, which I just described. That was one of my questions for you, was how did your family maintain their heritage and culture while also growing up and thriving here in Wyoming? And, and you mentioned these gatherings. There, were the, there, there were the gatherings, but more specifically, Carla, my mother was completely fluent in and written and spoken Japanese. And she was that way because she attended Japanese school during the summer months. So she went to school nine months in ordinary Lahanta High School, Lahanta in southeast Colorado. And then, and then three months Japanese school. So she went to school 12 months of the year. It was, she was a fine student and someone quite brilliant, actually. And she mastered the written and spoken Japanese that was taught in those schools. And her mother and father, of course, were first-generation immigrants. And they would speak Japanese around the home as compared to my father, whose circumstances were similar, but never went to Japanese school. There was not enough, weren't enough people in Warland to do that create as such a school. So he was he was like I am now, illiterate in Japanese, but my mother was not. And that was the source of my sense of being Japanese. I actually have a friend who lives pretty close to La Junta and there's quite a Japanese community still in that San Luis Valley area where she lives. They're still farming. I think they're it's mostly mushroom farms, but well, so your your network was bigger than yeah. even our little 
drivable in a few hours area. Yes, this is, I think the San Luis Valley is on the western side of the Rockies, as I recall. And my mother's family was on the eastern side, uh, La Hanta, Los Animas, Rocky Ford. My grandfather worked on the Santa Fe Railroad there for many, many years. And I have fond memories of spending Christmas um, in La Hanta, Colorado. My maternal grandmother was very Japanese. And so when I would try to eat dinner, but she saw that I could not use chopsticks. And this was a very grave failing on my part. A fearsome woman, but also firmly committed to family. And that was transmitted to my mother and hence to, and then to me, a sense of the importance of how important family is. You either got family or you got nothing, which was my understanding of life then and still is. Well, in 1938, the Japanese consul traveled from San Francisco to Worland to meet with your grandpa Suichi, and he offered him 10,000 acres in Manchuria to raise beef cattle, which is, you know, what he learned to perfect in Wyoming. But he was packed up and ready to go and changed his mind. And I just wondered what you thought about that and why he did decide to stay. You know, I... I don't know why he decided to stay, but I do know from talking to my uncles that he did change his mind at the last minute. When Grandpa arrived in the Bighorn Basin, he looked up into the mountains on both sides and saw the ranchers on horseback. Uh, and this is what he wanted to do, but he was too late for that, and he was not a citizen, and so on and so forth. He loved beef cattle. And we had in our, on our farm a feed lot, which would take in maybe a hundred head of, um, calves and we'd raise them through the winter and sell them in the early summer the next, of next year. So there was always Hereford cattle in, in my life. And I got that from my grandpa and grandpa was probably the only Japanese person, whether in Japan, or in the United States, who understood uh, the economics of and the care and feeding of open-range beef. And so the Council General came out and made this offer, and he was he was ready to go. I don't know why he changed his mind. I'm glad he changed his mind, because had he gone, I would not be here, and he would have probably been killed when the Chinese and the Soviets retook Manchuria from the Japanese. You know, he never talked very much about it. I think, you know, it was happy in the end that he chose not to go. Otherwise, his entire family, including my father, would have been taken prisoner or probably killed. Maybe he had an inkling of that. Not much of a geopolitician. But uh, if you were smart in 1938 and the Japanese were saying they could carve out an empire like the British did earlier in East Asia and down into in Indonesia. This would be the Japanese empire of which Grandpa would have become a part. They would have to face off against the Americans. And the Japanese, one can say in retrospect, stupidly felt that they could hold off or even conquer the Americans' desire to be a Pacific power. And Grandpa was pretty smart, and he may have 
he may have figured that out, that if, if he were to go and the Japanese folded, he was a dead duck. He thought that way and decided not to go. Your family, by the time World War II started, had already two generations of history right there in Worland, and then this internment camp is built. Could you talk more about how World War II and the establishment of Heart Mountain affected your grandparents and parents? Yeah, uh, as you may know, the Japanese-American exclusion encompassed people who live within 125 miles of the Pacific Ocean. That meant that 97% of Japanese Americans were going to be interned. Uh, our family, as you know, it's obvious, we were a thousand miles from the Pacific Ocean and were not considered security risks. So we were left alone and we never lost our property or any other terrible thing that happened to those who were removed. The internment camp was set up in Hart Mountain, which is about 70 miles as a crow flies from our farm. And Grandpa, during the wintertime, when he was not working the farm, once a week or sometimes twice a week, would milk the two cows and get into his little car and drive into Hart Mountain. And after a while, the guards who saw him would wave him in and wave him out, even though he was fully racially qualified to be in the camp. Uh, he said to me in the equivalent phrase in English or Arabic, if you wait long enough, the mountain will come to Muhammad. And in fact, it did. All these Japanese, about 11,000 or thereabout, showed up uh, between Cody and Powell. And he'd been there for some 40 years and had very little contact with larger the larger communities on the West Coast. And here they all were, and they came to him. I think he got involved in some of the disputes up there because he was not shy, including whether or not sons of Japanese-American first-generation immigrants should join the 442, which was the all-Japanese-American military unit that later distinguished itself in Italy and, and France. But later he said to me when I was maybe nine or ten that in Japanese you, you have to be careful in life, Masashi, because you come from a very stupid family. And I would say, Grandpa, why would you ever say something like that? And Grandpa would say in Japanese, because I voluntarily chose to settle a part of the world which 11,000 people were involuntarily removed. That's the way he, he looked at it and he fine sense, fine ironic sense of, of what happens in life. Right, an ironic sense of humor, too, it sounds he like. He did. He had, a, he had a terrific sense of humor. And and this is something that not understood among many Americans, and that is that Japanese Americans, they seem, uh, you know, to be very quiet, stoic, and rather humorless, humorless and just being, they were just good at math. Well, they have an uproarious, ironic, and absurdist sense of humor. Once you're in, when you're inside of that, it's really wonderful and, and engaging. You laugh until you roll on the floor. Grandpa was, was that way and his friends and around Powell and, and, uh, Lovell. 
southern Montana were all the same way. And I can remember uproarious parties where there's a lot of singing in um, Japanese. So it was a it was a rich life on Washkie Ten that was sort of unknown to the larger community. So I had a, a foot in both. Yeah, and I think, well, I'm a daughter of an immigrant. My dad was from Grable, but my mom was from Bolivia. Oh, really? And I th- yes, and my dad was in the oil business. That's where he met her when he was working in Bolivia in the, uh-huh. I guess, late 50s. Immigrants often are very funny because they've had to be observers a lot. You know, because they maybe are on the fringes sometimes or don't 100% understand what's going on. So they're observers and then they pass those observations on to us, the kids and the rest of their community. So you're so right. Absolutely. Because, you know, things that seem very quote unquote normal because you're part of the culture. Yeah. To somebody coming in from the outside, they are more likely to say, what is happening here? (laughs) And to make some observations of things that you might not even notice. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's the American story. We're strong and loving even for that. And I, I'm very proud to be half and half, or they say in Japanese, hambun hambun, half and half. But I'm also entirely comfortable in the culture that we have in America. And I now think of, Manhattan and Westchester County, New York, are also home to me in some some of the ways that Warland is, and I miss it, and I wish I were back and I weren't living in Philadelphia, but uh, my children are here, my grandchildren are here, which is why my wife and I are here. So I'm half Warland and, and half Manhattan, and I'm happy that way. I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about the Japanese American Redress Bill, which you mentioned during the Reagan administration, you were asked to lead the Japanese American Citizens League to work on passing the bill. And Mm -hmm. back then and now, reparations and redress is a lightning rod topic. I just wanted to hear from you what your personal reasons were for supporting this cause and why did you feel called to invest so much time and effort in it? For a couple of reasons. First, though we were not interned, uh, my mother's family in southwestern, I'm sorry, southeastern Colorado, subject to a fair amount of bigotry, much more than one found or did find in the Bighorn Basin. So my mother started school like many second-generation Japanese Americans, unable to speak English, by the time she finished high school, she graduated as a valedictorian of Lahanta High School. The kids and the teachers really loved her, but the administrators and the school board decided in their wisdom that no Jap was going to speak at their graduation. So she did, couldn't and didn't. And I think mom carried that with no bitterness, but with considerable sadness all of her life. So I learned about this when I was maybe 10. I felt badly about it. So that was... One reason I got involved. The second reason was that our Martin Luther King was a man named Minya Sui. He grew up somewhat in Stockton. His family moved to Denver, stayed out of the camps. And he was, he was our Martin Luther King. And our George Washington was a man named Mike Masoka, who became a controversial figure because he asked the Issei, first generation 
parents who were sitting in camp to give up their sons to join the 442. As it turned out, these young boys, uh, whom the, the German troops in Italy would call the little iron men, greatly distinguished themselves. And so that retrospectively made Mike uh, a heroic figure. Though to, to this very day on the Japanese-American left, he is much hated and derided because he asked Japanese-American boys to fight for what was a corrupt and racist society. So you hear echoes of that today, particularly among academics. In any case, these two men who are community leaders came to me and asked me to lead the effort because I had co-authored a book that came out every two years called The Almanac of American Politics. And so, as it was, both Tim Russert and George Will called it the Bible of American Politics. And what this did is take every congressional district in every state and using words and numbers, described what made this district in, let's say, eastern Washington, the way it was, why people voted the way they did, and how the representative of that congressional district usually gone, went along with what his constituency felt, which is to say, as John Ehrlichman said, how will it play in Peoria? That's the first question any politician in Washington asks. So we had, I had that in my pocket. Number one, I had huge access. The book was on the desks of who knows, Ken Duberstein and Reagan's White House, Mitch McConnell when he was a junior senator. Everybody had it. All of the, all of the bureaucrats had it. And it was a bestseller every two years in Washington and inside the Beltway. In any case, it was Washington that we needed. And the almanac had it. It didn't look very promising for quite a while in the early, early 80s. And I will also say that this was a five or six number numbers in this lotto. And we, we had to get every one of the numbers right. But we had a lot of luck. One of the most remarkable lotto numbers was December of 1945. A 442 soldier named Kazma Suda grew up in Fountain Valley in then agricultural Orange County, California, on a truck farm, and was killed in northern Italy and was to be given the Distinguished Service Cross. When his sister came back to Fountain Valley to make arrangements, the town fathers there said, we're sorry, miss, we don't bury Japs in our cemetery. And somehow, Vinegar Joe Stillwell heard about that and confronted the town fathers, and they backed down. Vinegar Joe said he was going to make a big deal of it and have a, a service on their farm, which they managed to keep somehow, the Masuda farm, and then one at the Hollywood Bowl. And at the farm, one of the people who was invited to speak was a 26-year-old movie star named Ronald Reagan. That, in effect, this is what proves that we're all Americans here, doesn't matter what color you are. Well, we knew that story in our history, but the question was getting the story to Reagan. The administration was against it because S. I. Hayakawa, a very conservative Japanese-American senator from California at that time, and Ed Meese, his friend, said no. Meese, of course, is attorney general, 
Sam, as he was called by both Reagan and Meese, said, we don't want this because the only people who do want it are the radicals like the ones I pulled a plug on in San Francisco State. And Hayakawa is the only Japanese Americans that either one of these two men knew. So we got to work on that. Reagan was campaigning in October of 87. He was campaigning for state legislators, Republicans in New Jersey. And I was th- at that time doing a book as a book editor in New York with the governor of the state, a man named Tom Kane. And Tom Kane brought the issue up with um, Reagan as they traveled around in a limo or helicopter, whatever they did. So we got, among other things, Kazma Suda's sister to write to Reagan. And that letter, along with one from the governor and one from me, Tom Kane sent down to Reagan something called a pouch, which was an open line for Republican governors to the president. And Ronald Reagan read that, and he said, my God, I remember that. I remember that farmhouse ceremony. This is something I want to do, and he did. All the pieces fell together. All the pieces fell together, and that was only one piece. Just about all the credit for Senate passage belongs to Senator Sparky Matsunaga, who was a junior senator from Hawaii at that time. And he really committed three years, intense years, to make it happen. It wouldn't have happened had not Oliver North created a scandal and the Republicans lost control of the the Senate in 86. And so now the subcommittee in charge passed from Bill Roth of Delaware, a Republican who just hated the bill for some reason, to John Glenn, who uh, said yes, and he loves Sparky. And in fact, Sparky is a sort of kid, you know, like in high school. Everybody loved this. Everybody loves Sparky Matsunaga in this small high school. The house is a bigger high school. And so the high school kids in the Senate said, if this is something Spark wants, we're going to give it to him. And so they did. Spark got 69 co-sponsors, which is uh, nine more than a he needed to overcome the filibuster. Anyway, got through the Senate, and then the, the House was Barney's, not Norm's, not Bob Matsui's, but Barney and Spark. And then we had Tom Kane on with Reagan. He needed all five numbers, or six numbers, or seven numbers to make it happen. From, you know, no chance at all in 1981 to making it happen in August 10, 1988, was um, the most important thing I did in life, and uh, in the end, uh, an, ex- an exhilarating experience. I'm sure you want to know about the success of the World and Warrior football team of 59. We were the state champs and uh, come back from, we came back to beat Douglas for the state championship. So that was the second most exhilarating experience in my life. Well, I did want to ask you if you had any other early memories of Worland that you wanted to share. And I know that, that high school football was definitely in your highlight reel. Is there yes. anything else? Yeah. I, I would say, Carla, that though my father 
had trouble at Wormwood High School with local prejudice. Uh, and my mother, you know, experienced it in spades. As I went through the system uh, beginning in 1948, was it? All the way through high school, I experienced very little of it. There was, a, as you probably know, some considerable bias uh, held against Mexican Americans, I can't say Hispanic kids, but even they, I think, were not excluded from the community in which, in ways, the blacks were, you know, segregated in the South. My experience growing up and going to school was really a, one reason why I, I consider Warland home and, and why I like going home. I would say even this, two of the really very attractive women, one a class ahead of mine and one two classes below mine in high school, you know, the homecoming queen in one case, they really like me. <laughs> so, so I, I conquered not only the, the, the high school gridiron in Cody and Grable and Lovell, but, um, the dating game, my mother and father would not let me date. But um, we had occasions when we would go on band trips in which this affection for me uh, showed itself. So, um, I love it. I can recall a group of kids in high school who, I guess they're seniors and they're members of the team and important members of our football team. And, you know, those, they didn't particularly admire people who are good in algebra, and that encompassed not only me, but four or five other kids, including Jackie Hampton, brilliant young woman who was the only girl in, in trigonometry class. They didn't like us, you know, guys who were sort of, what's the term? We were, we were the, we were the guys who were good in math and studied art, and that was not in. But when we got on the football field, one of the interesting things that the coach leader, uh, an assistant coach later pointed out to me is that they would, they would play for me, which is to say I was their leader on the football field, even though I was sort of a dink in solid geometry. So that made, that made things nice. And, uh, so the experience was, was, um, more than a little bit happy. But you know how, I think it's probably still the case, how important high school athletics is in a Wyoming high school. And right. one of the reasons I had an, a good time in high school was that I was, and my memories of Warland are really good, if not great, was participation in Warland Warrior football. And um, how did your parents and your grandparents react to your life in that aspect, sports and high school and kind of the quote-unquote American side of the culture? Well, my father was played for, for Warland when they played on a dirt field with a gravel patch and toward one of the end zones. He loved the idea of my playing football, and my mother was afraid, afraid for me physically. And I think she's probably right as we now look at high school sports with all the head injuries and 
physical damage done to the young guys whose bodies are not fully mature and play. My grandfather was especially proud because the games would be announced over KWOR, and the, and the announcer, of course, would call out my name as the games were played. And he was made very happy by that. I have to say in my about my grandfather with whom I had a very close relationship that we kind of understood each other. I'd, I'd done these various things, you know, in high school, uh, playing football, scoring very high on these tests these people gave, national merit tests, things of that sort. But for my grandfather, beyond playing high school football and being elected governor of, of Boy State was something even more important to him. And that is after I graduated from WCHS, Washkey County High School, it was as it was then known, I spent two months announcing on KWOR, the local radio station. I don't know whether it still exists. I was an announcer and I, I work from 2.30 to 10, uh, six days a week. So I would read the local news and uh, work the turntables and so on. And I came out on Worland Radio. And my grandfather said, I cannot believe how this has happened because when I landed in San Francisco, I had to cackle like a hen to buy an egg at, at the grocery store. And now my grandson is announcing on the radio I, I was not an especially, especially good announcer because you had to be your own engineer and spin the dials even as you were trying to find the weather forecast. I'll tell you one story about someone who I'm still very close to, Lorne Laird, member of the Laird family, notable one in Warland, inside linebacker for the Warriors of 59, really quite, quite a good player. So he, he announced, I think, the summer after I did. And here is the thing, the sort of thing that used to be tolerated on World Radio. So what would happen is that this teletype machine in the back would do something called a regional split, and it would, it would go into Wyoming news as opposed to who won the tennis tournament in Wimbledon and whether the Russians were behaving well or not. So on the regional split... The weather forecast was typed out, clickety-clack. And so what we would do, Lorne and I, would take that small strip of the weather forecast and tape it to the console. And so whenever there was airspace or something you couldn't control in the in the studio, you'd read the weather forecast. So Lorne was on one afternoon, and he, he says, well, um... Now I want to now I want to tell you what the tell you what the weather forecast is. Now I remember getting that strip of paper off the machine, and it, it said we were going to have a real nice day. Ernie says to everybody in town, "I'm looking out the window, folks, and it's raining like hell." So <laughs> that that was the sort of thing that the world of, of my day tolerated and enjoyed and. And I'm still very close to, to Lorne. We're 
Lowell Peterson said that there are we had 106 graduates of our class in 59, and we got right as of two days ago, Carla, we're exactly half of us are still around oh, learning. That's hard. Yeah, so to be abstract about it, you have you have this huge world out there. But what makes me happy about Warland then and now is that we're still human beings in a in a compre- comprehensible local setting. I didn't know it then. That's what ma- made Warland a, a really splendid place to grow up in, a great place to grow up in, and still and still a great place to be in. That's the way I feel about Warland. I'm very strong attachment to it. And someday, I think uh, my wife and I will be going back to Warland and in due course be covered by a foot or more of volcanic ash from Yellowstone uh, in a circumstance not altogether unhappy for either of us, certainly for me. Well, my daughter moved here pretty recently, I would say four months ago, three months ago. And even though she's been coming to Wyoming all her life, it's been as a visitor and it's her first time living here. Uh-huh. And it's been so fun to see her experience what you're talking about, to see it through her eyes, because she yeah. grew up in a big city, you uh-huh. know, with a lot of wonderful experiences internationally. And but she's never lived in a small town, never lived in Wyoming, never lived in a rural area. Right. And just the care that people show for each other and how much whether we want it or not, <laughs> are yeah. integrated into the fabric of a community. So in some some ways, that means people know your business, whether you want them to or not. Right. But for the most part, people offer a lot of grace because we're kind of few and far between. So we need to take up for each other, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's right. You might want to take a look at a piece that ran recently in a big city magazine, Vanity Fair, and it's a it's the story of a lot of people, maybe you know some of them, who are moving into parts of the of the West. Whether you're way left or way right, you're trying to find exactly what we're talking about here. In which people are people are real human beings. They're not abstractions. You know, they're real the real rocks and real hills and real trees around you. I think that what we we knew um, and what your daughter will experience is something elemental. It's not as if the hunters and gatherers, you know, thought of themselves as somebody who's in some sort of algorithm in in Mark Zuckerberg's computer operation. That's not that's not real. And what you experience now and what I experienced then and to a lesser extent I experience now is a sense of being amongst real human beings and real trees and, and real and the real Bighorn River. Um, none of these are abstract. You know, we're, a lot of us are still animals and we understand real rocks and real trees and real 
you know, real sky. So and we I'm, have so I'm, much I'm, more opportunity to be connected to that here, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Here in Philadelphia, you ran a lot of trees, but there's no sense of, there's no sense or hint of what has to be called the wild, you know, mm-hmm. where God made it. It's all man-made. So I'm, yeah, it's very curated <laughs> and curated, um, more so than what my, one would want. That was what I, what I knew when I was growing up. And I'm so grateful that grandpa did not pick up and leave for Manchuria. I know you don't know until later, maybe generations later, how much difference some choices make. You know, right. Well, now you're back in Wyoming, and that choice will mean a lot to yeah. to your, your your daughter, and she may not know it for a while. I have to tell you a little bit about how things happen in life. The Chicago Burlington and Quincy Railroad was owned every little tie and hunk of steel by a man named John Murray Forbes of Boston. And uh, he he started off sort of on the poor side of the Forbes family and then made a fortune in the China trade. And, and after that, running ships from mostly New York to San Francisco in the gold rush times. You could sell an egg there for a dollar a piece and you buy them for five cents a piece in New York and you sell them for a dollar a piece. And then he decided that this is not going to last. So he turned inland and founded the Central Michigan Railroad and the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. John Murray Forbes' descendants are now among the toniest of Boston Brahmins. So we go along and we fast forward to Seven years ago, my wife and I have a son who is a writer. And one of the things he does on the side is he does these biographies of notable people from families who can afford to have someone write a biography of this guy. So he wrote the, at the behest of the present day Forbes family, he he wrote a biography of John Murray Forbes. And so the answer is that in 1906 or 1904, when the train, when the tracks were laid through Orland, I think it was 1906, Stephen, my son's great, great grandfather was someone working as a guy laying track for John Murray Forbes. 110 years later, the descendant, my son, is writing the biography of this very man. That's quite something for me, and it makes me think that um, this is a pretty good country. In my own life, what happens at night when I dream is I start off in Harvard Square, and there's Mass Ave that runs on up north beyond the law school. And in my dream, I keep going a little bit farther than, um, than that. And then you know what happens? It turns into Bighorn Avenue in my dreams. So there's a continuity between what I knew as a child and what I knew as a teenager. 
and then further on in my life. And I say, that's pretty good. I mean, we've got a country with a lot of problems, and we all know what they are. But uh, to uh, revise uh, Winston Churchill a little bit, you know, it's it's sort of a bad country, but it beats hell out of whatever second best. My own life and that of my son proven that. And the truth is, if you think about it a little bit, is that none of this would have happened to me or any or my son had not I had a chance to study and do what I could to the best of my ability in the world and school system with all of the white people supporting the school system and the football team. I am as an American and as a Japanese American grateful to those people in Warland provided me with that. I have a question kind of about that. So after the bill was passed, you were awarded the Order of the Rising Sun by the Japanese government. Yeah. And it's the highest civilian honor awarded. And I, I found your acceptance speech to that award very moving, and I'll post it in the show notes. But in your speech, you immediately start deflecting the recognition by telling the audience about other Japanese Americans who are equally deserving. And you mention who you mentioned earlier, Kazuha Masuda, who was yes. killed in action yes. on the banks of the Arno River yeah. in Italy. I really encourage people to read the speech and learn more about his heroism. But my question to you and what really stood out to me in that speech is about your modesty, and that's a trait that's really valued both in Wyoming and Japanese culture. And what I wondered is, how do you think your character has been formed by that duality of Japanese and oh, Wyoming cultures? That's, that's an interesting, runs a deep question, if I may put it that way. I'll, I'll be a, a sort of a third-rate academic thinking about thinking about these things. The the Japanese culture is both steeply stratified. So you start with the emperor and you work down to my grandfather, okay? But even so, there is a strong bond between the emperor and my grandfather to the extent that there is a bond and there is a leveling. And so let's say for the sake of academic discussion that uh, my contribution to the success of redress was 15 units, all right? And the average Japanese-American who gave $100 to keep the office lights burning, contribution was not 15 units, but let's say three units, 15 and three. As the Japanese would understand this without knowing it, it turns out in their their collective minds that I contributed 10 and the person who contributed the money did not three, but six. So that when I show up and say, here are these other people and here's everybody else, that's that's how they perceive it. Which is to say, in some sense, you're not being modest, but that is a reality. The reality is nine and six, not 15 and three. So there is a basis for, quote, the modesty, because it's, it's flattened. 
So that's one source of the modesty. The other reality, I think from the perspective of Warland, is that it's a small town, and nobody in the small town loves a braggart. So I think for the sake of the truth and for the sake of social harmony, no one loves a braggart because we all know a braggart is in the last instance a liar. That's not the way the world works. And the reality is, for example, football is a team game. It becomes part of the culture, and I'm part of that culture, both Japanese and and in the Bighorn Basin. I was just struck by it because you think of Wyoming culture, whatever that is, you know, <laughs> hard yeah. to find, but Wyoming culture and Japanese culture is very different, but I think there are some overlaps in oh, yes. things that are important in character and yes. action. Absolutely, especially from my grandfather's and my grandmother's, both all four of them's perspective, they came from small villages in the mountains, right? And so grandpa, at least on my father's side, ended up in a small village in the mountains. And to that extent, the cultures were, quote, the same. Yeah, felt very at home. Yeah, very at the home. The scale indeed. of things. Yes, exactly. So what is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize about us, about our state? I would suggest that you read this piece in the Vanity Fair about, it's mostly about Wyoming and why people are going to Wyoming. And that is that this is a form of life that is more real and denser than what you came from in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. But you would have to spend time living in a community such as Grable or Lovell or uh, even small places like Shoshone for this to become apparent to you. So that's that's what you're missing when you drive through. If you would spend two hours reading a small pamphlet designed for tourists about the geology of, of um, Wyoming, it would open you up to uh, more than 65 million years that, that is apparent to you as you drive by it. If you're not acquainted with the enormity of time and space that visible to you from your car window, uh, you're also missing a whole lot. I agree. I love geology for that reason. One of the things I love about how the state highway system is, is how they label the geologic formations. Yes. It just makes it so fun to drive through and see the different time periods that are exposed as we, as we drive by. And there is a place between, you go up Powder River Pass and you Get be, just beyond the high point, which is at 9,066 feet, and then you go, go down toward Buffalo. Along the side of the road, there are shards of rock that have been exposed by this uplift of the bighorns, uh, grayish and white, that are 3 billion years old. And the Earth itself is only 4 billion years ago. So that's, that's what we have there. And, and if you, if you don't know the 
geology of of Powder River Pass, you don't know what what you're missing. So there's the geology of Wyoming, and then there are the people of Wyoming, uh, which God also made, but sometimes you wouldn't know that. (laughs) Uh, There is an honoriness that defies explanation also. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's also there's also you know uh, it can be a lonely place too. What do you think is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? I think one of the hardest things is what something you're now experiencing. When the weather gets bad, it is really bad in Wyoming. Often is you know life could be life threatening. I can remember the days when I'd step out of the house to go wait for the school bus to come along. And my eight-year-old fingers and hands could not believe how cold it was. So so the physical side of living there can be hard on you. And in fact, the fellow guys who worked on the railroad with my grandfather in 1906, when they heard that he was going to stay, my grandfather was going to stay in Wyoming and try to break out a farm. They said, are you crazy? You know, in a place where it's just freezing cold in the wintertime, uh, unimaginably hot in the summer. I mean, who'd want to live in such a place? So the weather, at least on Washington, is, can get to be uh, unpleasant. You know, I think that the harsh winters and the beautiful summers both contribute to that connectedness we feel both with the land, but also with each other. Because living in Wyoming in the winter is very different than coming to visit in the summer. Just how much people go out of their way to get together and connect. And we know the days are very short and it's very easy to hole up, but it's not necessarily good for us. So I find that social interaction in the winter has a different tone to it that I'm really, really enjoying. Well, that's that's interesting that you would say that. I never experienced it that way. I experienced well, one of the things I had to do, again, thanks to my grandfather, felt that it produced discipline. So I'd had, I had a cow to milk twice a day. So I'd have to go out well before the school bus arrived, and even when I had a car in high school, and I'd have to milk. It was a goddamn cold milking. <laughs> um, and then, you know, at night when you came home, you had to do it too, even though football practice lasted past six sometimes. Uh, my grandfather felt that um, it was important for me to have a cow to milk because they don't, the cows, none of the cows that he knew ever celebrated Thanksgiving or Christmas. So you had to be out. <laughs> right. And it's bad when you don't milk them. The weather would get to me, but maybe you're right. I had not thought about it that way, that, that, that the weather and the cold draws people together. Well, I have one last question. Sure. What do you love the most about Wyoming? I love the people and their understanding of each other and their support for each other. When you're in a pinch and you can't get your sugar beets out by yourself, 
uh, they're there to, to help you get them out. And, um, and that's an extreme what happens in my childhood. But uh, from one day to the next, there is uh, a love and understanding between and amongst um, the people of Orland and those others who I grew up with. Though Wyoming sounds like a lonely place, it is just the opposite. Well, that is it for today. I'm not going to say sayonara, since that means goodbye forever in Japanese. Instead, janne, see you again. I hope you enjoyed learning some about the spiny softshell turtle and about Whirlwind, Wyoming. And thank you so much to Mr. Grant Ujifusa for sharing some of his fascinating life story with us. I strongly urge you to check out the links on the show notes, Wyoming, my307.blogspot.com, especially Grant's acceptance speech for the Order of the Rising Sun. As always, if you have questions or suggestions, email wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at wyomingmy307. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Bye. Bye.